Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 121 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today is our season five premiere. It's actually been a little over four years since I officially launched Food Psych and started sharing episodes with the world in September of 2013, and it's been pretty incredible how much we've grown and developed since then, so I'm really excited to be going into our fifth season. And today, I thought it would be fitting, since I'm thinking about the history of the podcast, to talk about the history of something we cover a lot on the podcast these past few seasons, which is diet culture. So my guest is Emily Contois, a historian, author, and academic who studies the history of diet culture. Like, how cool is that? I met Emily at a retreat we both spoke at, and I knew immediately that I had to have her on the show because she has such a fascinating perspective on all the stuff we're always talking about on the podcast. So we talked about how women getting the vote increased pressure on women and femmes to restrict, the need for an intersectional approach to healthcare and food access, the religious undertones to our food behavior, gender roles in food, the body image issues that male-identified people face, and so much more. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. It's such a good episode. Today's listener question is from a listener named Beth who writes, I'm in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder and I've lost all knowledge of my body. I don't even know what I truly look like anymore due to the illness. Intuitive eating is something I wish to do, but I'm scared of overeating and I don't really have hunger signals. Do you have any tips on coming back in touch with your body's natural signals after so long? So thanks, Beth, for this great question. And before I answer it, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So intuitive eating is generally not recommended in the initial stages of recovery from a restrictive eating disorder. And here's why. Intuitive eating is based on being able to get in touch with your body's signals and use them to guide you, right? And it's not the hunger and fullness diet, as I talked about with Isabel Fox and Duke a few weeks back in our episode. It's not about only eating when you're hungry and having to stop when you're full. There are no rules with intuitive eating. So it's not like you can never eat for any reason other than hunger with intuitive eating, right? Or that you have to stop when you're full and you're bad if you overeat. Like that's not the point of it, right? It's not about diet rules because that that's turning intuitive eating into a diet, right? The hunger and fullness diet. Intuitive eating is about so much more than hunger and fullness, but it is about also learning to honor those cues. It's also about learning to honor the need for satisfaction and pleasure in your life, right? With food, it's also about breaking down the diet mentality, which is a huge, huge, huge component to being able to do intuitive eating sustainably and not turning it into the hunger and fullness diet. It's also about challenging the food police, breaking down food rules, and, you know, making peace with foods that you had considered off limits. So all of these are principles of intuitive eating. 
And many of those principles are things that you can work on in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder. However, hunger and fullness are not two things that I would recommend working on in early recovery from a restrictive eating disorder because, as you said, right, you're really out of touch with your hunger signals. You don't really have them right now. You're afraid of overeating and you don't really know what your body even looks like. You've got kind of maybe a body dysmorphia situation happening, right? So for all of those reasons, intuitive eating, like the full expression of intuitive eating where you are working on tuning into your hunger and fullness cues is not recommended right now in this initial stage of recovery. Evelyn Triboli, one of the co-authors of the book Intuitive Eating, and she was also a past guest on this podcast, explains that a meal plan is really important for the early stages of recovery from restrictive eating disorders or really any significant eating disorders, whether you're using bulimic behaviors, whether you're binging, whether you're just restricting, whether you're doing a mix of all of those. It's really important to have sort of a meal plan as a jumping off point or as a learning experience first. And she likens it to having a cast on a broken arm where you can let the broken bone heal. And so in this case, the eating disorder is the broken arm, right? Before you go to physical therapy or try to get back to a full range of motion, right? I've used this metaphor on this podcast before where like if you go from having a broken arm to trying to throw a baseball, it's not going to work because your arm is broken, right? It's going to hurt you even more. And so intuitive eating is like throwing the baseball, right? Or actually the sort of practice of intuitive eating is more like the physical therapy after you've had the cast and gotten it off and you're trying to get back to a full range of motion in your arm, right? Or whatever part, you know, we can use an analogy for any type of broken bone, right? Even if you don't have a use of your arm in the first place, right? Any broken bone, this is the case where if you want to get back to being able to use it, you're going to need first a cast to set the broken bone and then some healing time in the cast and then time for, you know, physical therapy and sort of getting back up to speed. And then finally, you'll be able to use that limb or that bone or whatever in the same way that you did before and hopefully have the same range of motion, the same capacity and not really have to think about it anymore. That's the goal, right? And that is possible with intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is like that full range of motion that you ultimately get to where it's just easy. You don't have to think about it. It's not something you're working hard on. It's just there, right? That's the full expression of intuitive eating, really, is getting back to the internal connection with our hunger and fullness, our body's wisdom, our pleasure and satisfaction in food, all of those things I was just talking about, getting back to having those be instinctual and intuitive, right? Because we are all born as intuitive eaters. We are all born with that capacity. It just gets taken away from us through diet culture and through disordered eating. But that said, like really the cast in this metaphor here, the thing you need to really heal you from the behaviors of disordered eating and to help you get back in touch with your body's cues is going to be some sort of meal plan or some sort of work with, I would say, an experienced dietitian who understands both intuitive eating, health at every size, and eating disorder recovery, right? So someone who gets it, someone who understands all of those things and can create a meal plan for you or help you design a meal plan that's going to work for you, that's going to help you get back in touch with your cues and be sort of a bridge to intuitive eating. So helping you heal from the disordered behavior and 
give you a sense of what is enough food, right? What what do you actually need to eat? Because restrictive eating disorders really reduce what people think of as an appropriate amount of food. And actually, diet culture does this too. Diet culture, restrictive eating disorders, whatever type of eating disorder you have, there's probably some element of restrictive thinking in there. And so for a lot of people with eating disorders and disordered eating, the idea of how much is enough food is very skewed. It might seem like a very small amount of food, the amount of food that you were taught to eat on a certain diet or the amount of food that you've eaten at various points in your eating disorder is quote unquote enough, when in fact that's not true, when in fact that's not meeting your body's actual needs. And so that can cause you to stay stuck in the eating disorder. So working with an experienced dietitian who understands this stuff is really my recommendation. You can find a list of dietitians and other health professionals who are certified in intuitive eating in the Certified Intuitive Eating Counselors Directory, which is at intuitiveeating.org. So I would search for someone in your area there, or you could also look at hayescommunity.com. That's H-A-E-S community.com to try to find a health at every size provider in your area. But it's really important to work with someone who can give you a meal plan that will help really reignite your hunger and fullness cues and help you heal so that eventually you can move on to that practice of recognizing and honoring your hunger and fullness. But all that being said, there really are aspects of intuitive eating that you can work on even in the early stages of recovery from an eating disorder. And so one of those aspects is body acceptance, right? That's a huge key to making intuitive eating stick, as you heard me talk about in last week's episode with Lindsay Averill, where she was saying, you know, she really worked on body acceptance and also rejecting dieting, rejecting the diet mentality before really embarking on intuitive eating. So she was ready to accept whatever happened to her body in the process of intuitive eating. So if you're really out of touch with what your body even looks like and you're experiencing body dysmorphia, which is definitely something that happens in restrictive eating disorders, it's going to take a while before you can reach a point of body acceptance that will help you stop really fearing overeating and allowing yourself to eat enough. But I think that's something that's really worth working on now in those early stages of recovery. So it can take many forms. And I think working with an experienced eating disorder therapist who understands health at every size and intuitive eating is an important aspect of this, right? Doing body image work with a therapist who is compassionate, who understands, who's non-fat phobic, who can help you break down the fat phobic diet mentality that you might be holding on to is super important to being able to do this body image work effectively. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned that you're scared of overeating, right? So really consider what are the reasons for that? And very likely the reason you're scared of overeating has something to do with fat phobia and fear of weight gain, right? And so where does that come from? Where were those beliefs installed? Was that something that you were born thinking? I don't think so, right? It's diet culture that implants those beliefs about fear of overeating and about fear of weight gain. Because if you think about it, if we lived in a culture that was accepting of all bodies and that was very neutral with regard to what size was quote unquote good, right? Where there wasn't a thin ideal that people were always striving for, overeating would have a lot less stigma, right? Because really when you dig down underneath people's fears of overeating, and I've done this with clients, right? I keep asking like, why is that an issue? Why is that an issue? Why would that be a problem? Why, you know, kind of for every reason that people give for fear of overeating, kind of asking why to that reason, right? Keep going back to the core reason. Nine times out of 10, what you find is, well, because I'm afraid I would gain weight, 
if I overate. And therefore, I would have all these negative outcomes based on what I fear about being in a larger body. So really explore those deeper reasons for you. And I think this is best done with a therapist. But of course, I acknowledge that there's privilege in being able to go to a therapist and a dietitian for this stuff. I really encourage you to do whatever it takes, like use your insurance, do what you have to do to try to find a dietitian at least who will help you get a good meal plan going so that you can sort of behaviorally or physically recover your hunger and fullness cues and do what you can as well to be able to work with a therapist on this stuff. But there's some amount of this that maybe you can do through support groups or journaling or, you know, talking with supportive friends who understand and are compassionate, really exploring why you're afraid of overeating, why you're afraid to eat enough, and why you think something that might be biological enough, you're fearing that that's too much, right? Explore what that fear is about and dig underneath that fat phobia and ask yourself, what if I didn't live in a fat phobic society? How would I feel then? How would I relate to my body and to eating or the fear of overeating then, right? Would that even be a problem? And, you know, of course, that kind of thought experiment isn't just going to make the fears go away. But the more you can separate yourself from those fears, the more you can talk back to them and sort of look at them as an aspect of the eating disorder and of this fat phobic culture and have this other part of yourself that's sort of a compassionate witness observing those thoughts and saying, hey, but does it really have to be like this? And sort of questioning those thoughts and and noticing and, and working with those thoughts, the more you're going to be able to ultimately detach from them and start thinking differently. And that's a big aspect of recovery is starting to think differently and starting to reject eating disorder thinking and letting your, your compassionate self be in charge. So sometimes that's referred to as the healthy self. I often refer to it as the compassionate witness or the compassionate self. But there really is this distinction when you have an eating disorder between the disordered part of your mind and the part of your mind that is truly you, that is truly caring and compassionate for yourself and that wants the best for you. So a lot of people will, if they're in the throes of an eating disorder, they really resist that idea. I've had some clients, when I was seeing people with really acute eating disorders a while ago, I was having some clients you know, fight me on this idea because it's hard to separate from that. It's hard to sort of acknowledge like, maybe this eating disorder thought isn't actually me, right? And sort of giving up that identification with an eating disorder can be really challenging, especially if you've had it for a long time. So give yourself time to explore that idea and sort of get your head around it. Give yourself lots of compassion as you work through this process of letting go of diet culture, of trying to separate from the eating disorder, and explore the principles of intuitive eating that don't have anything to do with hunger and fullness just yet, and know that that will come in time. But it's it's actually a really important part of the process not to dive into that right away when you're recovering from an acute eating disorder. So I hope that helps. And for those of you who want to ask a question of your own, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions to ask a question of your own for possible inclusion on the podcast. We're brought to you today by M.M. LaFleur. For the woman who wants to look impeccable at work but has better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, the solution is M.M. LaFleur. They take the work out of dressing for work. Each M.M. LaFleur customer works one-on-one with an M.M. stylist to build her own work wardrobe in a systematic and personalized way. 
All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an MM stylist will send you a personalized bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories handpicked just for you based on your preferences and lifestyle. And remember, they have both straight sizes and plus sizes, and they're just as committed to good tailoring in their plus size clothes as they are in the straight size ones, which is one of the reasons why I love them. Once your bento arrives, you have four days to try everything on. Then you can keep what you like and send the rest back. You won't be charged for anything up front, and you only pay for the items you keep. Plus, shipping is free both ways, so there's really no risk. It's completely free to try, and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment. And when you try them out, you'll also be supporting the podcast and helping me keep bringing you great new content each week. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's mmbento.com. I also want to share a few resources that I love for helping you improve your relationship with food. The first is my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. This is my quick start guide to intuitive eating and health at every size. So if you're looking for some tips to launch your anti-diet journey and really get started with the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, this is the place to go. Head over to christyharrison.com strategies to get it, or you can text seven strategies to the phone number 44222. That's the number seven and the word strategies all together to the phone number 44222. The second resource I want to share is my friend and former podcast guest Summer Inanin's brand new group coaching program, which is called You on Fire. It's designed to help you overcome body image struggles and start accepting your badass self in all your glory. And I signed on as an affiliate to this program because I love Summer's work and because this program is such a great adjunct to the work that I do because my work is about making peace with food and ditching diet culture and teaching people intuitive eating. And Summer's program gets really deep into your relationship with your body and yourself. Summer is also offering a free workshop called Stop Being So Damn Hard on Yourself in the next few days, which I love. Next few days, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, I should say. So check that out to learn more about her philosophy and her program. And if you sign up, you'll also be supporting my work and the podcast. So you can learn more at christyharrison.com slash summer. That's christyharrison.com slash summer. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Emily Contois. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Sure. So my relationship with food was influenced from the time I was pretty young by my extreme training in ballet. I found ballet when I was eight years old. It was an arts enrichment day at my elementary school. Ballet teachers was there and I took a class and I liked it. And she said, oh, you should do this. You know, you should really come take class. Like you should be a dancer. And my mom and I sort of joked, like, what if they told me to go be an opera singer, right? Would I have gone and done that instead? We don't know. <laughs> but for me, like that was the bug. And I, you know, trained days a week from the time I was little. I was maybe 10 or 11 when I really jumped in and, you know, stretched every day, did all sorts of extra, you know, exercises, really trying to mold the body and the flexibility and the the artistry of being a dancer. I checked out every book from the library on ballet, collected all the stickers and books and figurines. Like it, it was my whole life. So I sort of describe it, you know, it was my first love. It's what I did from, you know, eight to 18, really intensively. 
deeply. And so ballet is this sort of difficult space when you don't have the body that meets a very specific aesthetic ideal. And ballet changed so much after George Balanchine and sort of the expectations for a very, very lean body and very quick, fast technique. Like I, I had the movement, I had the artistry, I had the love for all of it. I loved being on stage. But I was built for power. You know, my husband's a bodybuilder and power lifter. And when we, you know, had time in the gym together working on stuff, like, you were just built for something else, you know, like it should, my body shouldn't have been viewed as a detriment, like something I had to get over in order to pursue ballet, that it could have been such an asset had I followed a different path. But for me, ballet was it. And so pretty extreme dieting and a pretty long experience with disordered eating. And finally, it was when I went to college, you know, having roommates who had like a baby intervention who just, you can't work out this much. <laughs> like this, this isn't normal. This isn't right. So I worked on that all through college. And it's been, you know, this ongoing experience of figuring out a healthy relationship to so intellectually thinking about anxieties and tensions, contradictions and complicated relationships with food is part of what's animated my scholarship from the time I was young. I wrote my undergrad thesis on the language of the dieting industry. I was really influenced by Susan Bordeaux's Unbearable Weight, which is this really incredible work of you know feminist philosophy, looking at how the advertising industry and all throughout pop culture, how it represents women's relationship with food and does a lot of purposeful work to make it a complicated, difficult relationship. And so for me, working through, for example, you know, the diet menus at chain restaurants, like I was looking at Olive Garden and Applebee's and Red Lobster, looking at, you know, these healthy, quote unquote, healthy menus they offered and looking at what the underlying subtext behind them was, which was about guilt and shame and disciplining the body and really being able to have these intellectual breakthroughs that like guilt should not be an emotion that's attached to food and eating and that that was one of these ways that folks could repair their relationships with food. And as I was working through, you know, that first big piece of scholarship and research, you know, on my own, when I was 20 and 21, those were the breakthrough moments for me to really move on to these next steps in my own relationship with food and to be able to continue dancing, but to be able to think about my body differently. Muscle memory is such a beautifully incredible thing. I've had to take a couple of breaks from dance at different points in my life. And so to leave it for a year or two and then come back to it and it takes time, but your body remembers it. The technique comes back, the turnout, your feet get back in shape, the flexibility comes back. Like it was an amazing experience. Like there hasn't been anything else in my life where that sort of kinesthetic knowledge is so just poignant as it flows through you. And so, you know, that was part of my own complicated relationship with food. But I, looking back, I really don't think I would change it. Like dance was this incredibly important first chapter of my life and a big part of who I am. Yeah, it sounds like it really, it gave you a lot of creative, a creative outlet. And, you know, the artistry of it was something that you really valued. The pressure to be a certain size or to have a certain type of body sounds like it really affected your relationship with food and with 
the amount that you are working out or moving your body in sort of instrumental ways, right? So maybe beyond just just sort of exercise for dance, it was about changing your body size or shape. No, exactly. And I mean, I started when I was eight. And so I came from a, you know, a wonderfully supportive studio in my hometown in Billings, Montana, where I grew up. But when I would go away in the summer, you know, to more competitive summer intensives at really great schools and programs. And when I was dancing in college, you know, in these sort of formative years of who you are as a person, I had the bad advice come to me over and over again, you know, comments like, your thighs are so strong, you know, which was this coded language for them being too big, too muscly, you know, not having the right lines. Isn't that interesting that strong is a, a negative term? Exactly. And when I was recovering from the eating disorder, I remember, you know, being being told that I looked healthy felt like Oh, it didn't feel like a compliment. You know, it felt like a criticism, right? If I looked healthy, then I wasn't thin enough, you know, to be able to pass as the kind of body you're supposed to have as a dancer. And when you get the advice, you know, from these wonderful Russian teachers who I adored and who appreciated my artistry, but they tell you, you know, don't starve, but, you know, don't eat. <laughs> you know, oh, like God. that was when I'm, you know, 15, 16 years old. But of course, that's going to influence how you actually eat. Yeah, it's like walking that line of diet culture, right? Walking mm -hmm. that impossible line. Yes. And it's so far beyond, like we've talked about, you know, how the thin ideal, you know, populates American popular culture and magazines and on television and, you know, the whole idea of models and celebrities. But in ballet, it's like this very overt sort of requirement, similarly to you know how models must experience sort of their physical process of being able to be a model, right? Like you either have it or you don't. And if you can't get it, the door will not open for you. And so that's why no matter how challenging, you know, different stages of my life have been, writing a dissertation, getting into a PhD program, like those are different hurdles. But in many ways, they've been so much easier because no one's ever asking me to change something about myself that cannot be changed without incredibly drastic measures. No one's, no one's asking for that. They're asking you to push deeper, you know, with your ideas and go farther and be more critical. Like that's all such easier feedback to take and sort of opportunities to push oneself. Right. And it's stuff that you have the capacity to do. It's sort of inherently respectful in a way to say like, hey, you can you can go deeper with this. Right. It's sort of saying like you have the potential to go deeper. So so try that, you know, rather than do this thing that you don't really have the genetic potential to, to achieve, <laughs> right, to change the structure of your body or to, you know, change its size in some sustainable way that's, of course, impossible. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so when your friends had that intervention, did, did you stop dancing for a while then? Was that part of what made you take some time off from it or were there other reasons? I did. I took a year then to sort of try and get things straight. Part of what was difficult is that being Emily the ballet dancer was such a significant part of my identity. It's what I'd done for more than a decade, you know, thinking about it every second of my life. And so having to take that year to sort of reestablish who in the world I wanted to be. And so being able to do that in college when my mind was so turned on by everything that I was learning, I was one of those students who took, you know, 
20 credit units just because I loved everything. Like I, <laughs> you know, and now I have, you know, all these three different master's degrees and finishing my PhD that I, I found an intellectual home where I felt alive in a different way than I did on stage. I feel like there are some pieces of what ballet gave me that are just not, I haven't been able to find a substitute anywhere else in my life. But being able to find myself in an intellectual space and in another sort of formative moment in my journey was a great place to be able to really deal with those issues and move move forward in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you first get started being interested in diet culture? Was it through your own personal journey that you explored some books or did you sort of approach it from a purely academic standpoint? Yeah, I think it wasn't until I was further into it that I really realized how much it was about me. Like I really came to it from an intellectual place. I was primarily interested, you know, with the cultural aspects of food and eating and health in America. And there's such interesting work to argue that sort of disordered eating or eating that is wrought with anxiety is a distinctly American phenomenon. And mm-hmm. so in my work, you know, part of which is still about diet culture, though I'm looking at men and masculinity, you know, makes the claim that to study diet culture in America is to be able to fully unpack American culture for all of her contradictions and to be able to understand, you know, the competing demands within our political systems, our cultural expectations, our religious history, that dieting, you know, when you think about it in this much broader context, gives us a lot to think with. It's about so much more than just losing weight or being thin, or even about social constructs like the thin ideal. But there's a lot more going on than that. And so for me to be where I am at my career now, you know, studying diet culture for more than a decade and there's still so much to unpack and to think with that it's been a satisfying problem you know to chew on for a really long time absolutely and i'm so curious to hear your thoughts on all of those aspects of like what diet culture means and why is it sort of a uniquely american problem i mean of course we have listeners from around the world that are going through this kind of stuff too and i think maybe it's been a an export <laughs> to some degree to other cultures but you know what is the sort of genesis of diet culture in this country and how has it spread So I agree with the histories of multiple other scholars who all point to a particular historical moment where the thin ideal as something that was held up and general concerns about thin and fat bodies, and I say fat as a fat study scholar, as an empowered term, that those social concerns are very distinctly a mid to late 19th century phenomenon. It's within the broad and gigantic social changes that came with urbanization, thousands and thousands and thousands of people moving away from rural life and rhythms and careers and employment patterns into cities, having that significantly change how people conceptualize themselves and their families and their identities. That's the same time that we have the rise of new industrial systems, right? That it's the rise of industrial capitalism as a system of production. And as we get into the 20th century, the rise of the consumer culture, 
So other scholars have written very persuasively about consumerism as Americanism, that what we buy, the way we dress ourselves, the consumer goods that we bring into our lives and define ourselves through, that those are significant aspects of being an American, that shopping is in many cases equated with voting and other sorts of civic activities, that the kinds of consumers we are define us as Americans. So that plays out in really complicated ways when we look at sort of greenwashing in contemporary context and thinking about the implications of framing food choices around ethical consumption, that the the sort of archetype of the American as consumer is central to those sorts of recommendations, which is something complicated to think through. Right. Like this idea of voting with your dollar. Yeah. And vote with your fork, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. all tied up in consumer decisions, which is tied up with. So it's what these scholars claim is this unstable double mind between a capitalist system and a consumer culture, where there's this unresolvable tension between consumption and then the expectation of restraint whether it comes from our Puritan roots or the religious histories you know, of early America, that these expectations of piety and restraint and control are deeply ingrained in American food culture. When folks have written about the French paradox of how the French have this you know, wonderfully high-fat, indulgent, luxurious diet, and yet have fewer incidences of sort of diet-related diseases compared to the United States, that I think one of the most compelling arguments about that is not that the French don't diet, because they do, they restrain, they restrict. But when they do indulge, when they do eat on a normal basis, they don't do it with guilt. The guilt piece is part of what hobbles the American relationship with food writ large. And so that's why I think it's such an interesting hinge point of really thinking through what is the really, what's the space for guilt? How does it get there and why? So that's part of, you know, why I was so interested when I was looking at the sort of themes of, you know, Christian Protestantism that go through secular diet books. Those frameworks, those moral frameworks that have these distinctly religious roots are part of where that overarching idea about guilt, you know, these ideas of sin and temptation and redemption and rebirth, how those come to be attached to dieting, you know, that's part of how they hold their cultural power, but also how they do such significant damage um, to people's relationship with food and being able to break free from those kinds of ways of thinking about food. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just thinking as you were saying that how interestingly it's morphed and shifted, but still there's this religious through line into all the diets that have been really popular in the last at least few decades. You know, the diets that I've observed in my lifetime of like going from low fat in the 80s and 90s to Atkins to the just sort of the marketing of diet foods as like sinfully delicious or guilt free mm-hmm. or whatever. But then now we also have this really insidious sort of thread of it, which is like cleanses and Mm -hmm. quote unquote resetting and, you know, things that that's also sort of religious language and and 
metaphor, right? That Yes, it's the same. Exactly. You know? if, if this is clean, then what's dirty? If this is pure, then what's contaminated? And so it's the exact same moralization of ways of eating. And I think what I think is so detrimental about that is that what I call these moralized chains of consumption, that it's not just good and bad foods, but that relates to how people think about good and bad eaters, good and bad people. And that's where it's so ingrained. And so that's why I really push back against the use of sinfully delicious and guilt-free, even when attached to foods that people would think of as very straightforward, be quote unquote healthy and health promoting. And that it just, it's still attached to the same destructive systems of thinking about food. Totally. And also, uh, you know, thinking about the idea of voting with your fork, right? I wonder how that plays into it because the idea of clean eating or trying to eat in a way that's less harmful to the planet or whatever is very tied up with morality too, right? And what, what we quote unquote should be eating or what is sold as the sort of morally correct way to eat is very austere and restrictive to a lot of people and can can lead to that guilt response that often happens with you know the deprivation and guilt cycle where people are so deprived that they end up eating the thing that was forbidden and feeling incredibly guilty and sort of going through the whole cycle again of restrict 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 and then end up eating the thing or binging or whatever and feeling super guilty Oh, absolutely. And I think vote with your fork also, you know, it has um, like distinctly classist undertones as well. The, the expectation that that's how we're going to change the food system is that every individual has the agency and the resources to be able to make those sorts of changes turns a blind eye to the realities of many people's eating experiences and opportunities to be able to eat well, whatever that looks like for them and their families. And eat with your fork as this broad solution, you know, to the problems of food in the world right now is also a distinctly neoliberal edict. The idea that it is individuals and individual personal responsibility that will change these systems is not a reasonable solution. Of course, individual action is part of it. But in thinking about systems change and thinking about broader changes to environments and policies and structural solutions to opportunities for good, just eating for all people is a much larger political issue than just every individual eating better and differently. Mm, so well said. Yeah, because it's a collective it's a collective issue, right? It's not about individuals voting for change with their fork. And if they're not doing it, then there's something wrong with them or that the system won't change or something if we don't all as individuals take this responsibility because we don't all have the same resources to be able to do that. And even if we do, I think this is a point that sometimes gets missed too, is that like, even if we have the means to always buy whatever is considered the sort of morally superior you know, choice du jour, it might affect us very negatively to do that, to be sort of, you know, to feel hemmed in or to feel required on a moral level to make certain food choices. And that really harms the person. So it's not a responsibility that individuals need to take. It's a collective 
change of the food system, perhaps, or a systemic change at the political level, right? The policy mm -hmm. level, like this is stuff that we as individuals can help influence by like voting or calling our senators or doing political actions. This is not something we can influence by, you know, in any significant way by our day-to-day -day food choices. Ah, and I know you and I have both struggled with that, you know, in, in broader sort of public health campaigns, right? That like, that education is the solution. People just need to know how to eat better. Like, that hasn't worked for decades and decades and decades. And yet we continue to pour money into all of these different campaigns to help people eat more fruits and vegetables and... That alone is absolutely not the solution. Of course, there is space and education is one component and empowering individuals is one piece of it. But it is so far from the number one thing, <laughs> let alone the sole thing that we should be focusing on. And one other thing that your comment made me think of, of sort of how the expectation of making healthy choices all the time, even as folks with the resources to be able to do that, made me think think of Robert Crawford's work on healthism. So he argues, you know, that health has been so focused upon and held up as this super value of the middle class, that the pursuit of good health, whether it's through good eating and cooking and eating as a family every night and everyone having a gym membership and, you know, that those are such significant social ways by which middle class status is defined and how it's maintained and how the borders, the walls around middle class status are maintained in an exclusionary way as well, right? That if you don't achieve these behaviors, that that puts you into a different social strata based on education and access and daily behaviors. And I think, you know, those dynamics of inclusion and exclusion are important that we think about those as well. Absolutely. And I'm curious, you know, with the historical context of that, right, because I know from watching your amazing talk on this subject that the sort of rise of the middle class was a huge part of what drove diet culture. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you sort of elucidate the class implications there. No, absolutely. So that's tied up in really complicated ways, you know, with the, the combined social shifts of urbanization and industrial capitalism and with immigration of new, new populations of folks coming in that there wasn't a middle class in the way we think of it today before those gigantic shifts. And so that mid to late 19th century period is this moment where that group of people is trying to move up and to define themselves in very particular ways. So if you ever look at like the material culture of Victorian dining, there are plates and spoons and knives and, you know, all these pieces, right? That we, even at the fanciest restaurant today, you wouldn't have this many objects that were a part of sort of defining the eating experience as wholly dignified and refined and containing all of that knowledge. So it's within that moment that a really great history on anorexia, a medical history, right? Looking at it as a disease and how it shifts in this particular moment in the 19th century. That part of it is sort of this moment of rebellion and resistance against these sorts of sort of culinary manners and expectations of the middle class, of how women were supposed to act and to feed others, how it played into courtship at the time, expectations for young women getting married, that it's all tied up in interesting ways with dining and food and all of the objects that went along with it. But healthism is related to this idea then of the unhealthy other, 
And so in the moments where the middle class is defining itself through proper eating and good health, that that defines the unhealthy others as all below that and um, outside of its boundaries. And so the, this moment in the 19th century is certainly a moment where that explodes in important ways, but we see it again in interesting ways in the 1950s with the rise of the suburbs, with the Cold War and all of these huge political and social themes of containment and of great anxiety about gender, about sexuality, about geopolitics, about the family. There were huge concerns that television was going to ruin, you know, the social bounds of people. They were never going to leave their homes again, right? They would <laughs> stay home and watch television. But at the same time, that you know, we were going to lose the space race. Like it was this really anxious time. And so in thinking about what convenience food meant then, you know, all these products that came out of the military industrial complex of World War II, that they significantly changed the foodscape. And that's also another moment where diet culture really takes off. Weight Watchers is incorporated in 1963. So it's definitely a part of that post-war 1950s, 1960s moment. So it is, it's crazy. We get Betty Friedan, Weight Watchers, and Julia Child all in the same couple of years. So they all play out in different ways, the same underlying anxieties that were shaping women's experiences at that time. That's so interesting. And they seem like sort of different responses to the same pressures, right? Or some, some of the same issues that women were facing at the time. Mm-hmm. And issues that, you know, we see resurface in different ways. So as I'm looking at men and masculinity in food, like I'm studying it, you know, from 2000 to where we are now, arguing that that is this another distinct moment of gender crisis. But you can see these similar undulations and waves and moments of panic at the turn of the, you know, in the 1890s, at the turn of the last century, in the 1920s, in the 1950s, in the 1980s. So it happens, these concerns about food, about the body, about identity, they peak at moments when they're compounded by all these other significant social changes. And so that's part of why, you know, I like being able to sort of intellectualize, theorize, historicize these problems, but it's never just about restricting what one's eating and trying to lose weight, that these ideas about food and the body are deeply ingrained and very complex, and they're implicated all across culture. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I think it is valuable, too, for people to recognize, you know, people who might be struggling with their own relationships with food, that there are these cultural moments and that this has happened sort of again and again throughout history where diet culture has risen and manifested in different ways. Or, you know, the concept maybe before diet culture as a thing really even existed, there was still the concept of restraint in different ways, right? And sort of cultural pressures to restrain yourself in a socially acceptable manner or whatever that was at the time. And the moment we're living in now is, I mean, we'll talk about your research on on men and food because that's super interesting. And then also just generally, I think everybody is living in a time of great panic about health and healthism and the clean eating movement and fear about processed food and all of that stuff, which is, I think, sort of stepping back from it if you're in it and stepping back and saying, like, this is a cultural moment. This is something that is larger than just my choices. My choices are being influenced by the sort of collective pressure that we're all facing or this external pressure that we're, we're all facing is really 
helpful in a way, right? Because it it takes the onus off the individual. Going back to what we were talking about with the neoliberal philosophy that it's always an individual responsibility. It's like, no, actually, as a collective, we have some responsibility to change the culture so that people don't end up kind of falling into these same traps that are very much inevitable in the culture that we live in now. And it's not your fault as an individual that you're falling into this trap. It's you're sort of doing you're following the script that's being set out for you by this culture. No, absolutely. I think that was one of the really emotional moments for me after, you know, I gave um, this keynote talk, sort of thinking about the history of diet culture. The woman came up to me afterward and said, you know, it, it did. It showed me this isn't my fault that it has this significant history, that it's reinforced and compounded in all these aspects of our daily life, not just in women's magazines or in films, you know, that it's everywhere through, you know, all throughout the culture. But I hoped that was, you know, something that people could take away, that the context in which the thin ideal and dieting as a, a social preoccupation, that context was so complicated and deep and rife with so many anxieties that, of course, when we think about our own context, of course, there is a web as complex, as deeply historicized, as difficult to wrangle that's underneath our current ways of thinking about the body. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts about the thin ideal too, you know, and sort of the history of that, how it emerged and shifted over time and and how it got to the point that it's at now where it's sort of sort of just everywhere. Yeah. So what's fascinating is that these ideas about dieting and restraining appetite and trying to lose weight as a social phenomenon in the late 19th century actually targeted men. So as employment patterns shifted, as the ideal of the self-made man changed, right? Men didn't all own their own plot of land and they didn't all build things with their hands anymore. As those sorts of changes happened, there were these broad concerns that culture in general was being feminized and that men and their sense of virile masculinity was waning away in these new, you know, social urban environments. The word masculine and masculinity doesn't even exist until this later period from 1880 to 1910. Whoa. Yeah, that's one of those very new ideas about what it meant to be a man that changes significantly. And so part of that social anxiety around masculinity mapped on to the strength of America as a nation. You know, it had geopolitical sort of consequences and thinking about the strength of the nation. And so that's when we have sort of this first rise of bodybuilding culture. That's when boxing becomes um, football. That's when it is, as, you know, as a more violent sort of American pastime than baseball really become popular. So all of these forces of thinking about, you know, identity and dieting and the body being linked together at first are targeting men. And so it's after 1920 that the thin ideal sort of shifts in focusing solely on women in a profound way. And so as I've studied men across the 20th century, I would argue that ideal body types for men, that those expectations have become more anxiety ridden. I have this whole section where I write about sort of the rise of all these Marvel superhero movies, oh, right? Yeah. Like 
so we had to wait for Hollywood to come up with the technologies to have all these special effects, right? So like, there's a technological reason for why these movies happen when they do. But like comic books, you know, from a historical perspective, you know, they come out during World War II primarily as these efforts in nation building and of building patriotism and of rallying the citizenship, you know, behind, you know, the very complex social conditions of wartime. And so it matters, right, that all these movies come out in this same historical time period that I'm studying of like, what is so anxiety ridden about the 21st century and this shift into a new millennium? And so I'm thinking about, you know, not only sort of the hard body characters that started, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, Rambo and Rocky, you know, all these films that put a particular kind of masculinity on display with particular kinds of stars of how these more contemporary movies with the superheroes with very tight revealing costumes have put these new sort of expectations on what the ideal male body type looks like. And the thing I find so interesting is what happens when stars like Chris Pratt and Paul Rudd, you know, these guys next door who used to have the dad bod, what happens when they become as well these very muscly, ideal male body types as they also sign on to these superhero kinds of films. And so there's definitely been studies. The idea of normative discontent has been used to describe, you know, women's experiences with their bodies, that being dissatisfied with your size and shape and always working to change it, that that is so common to the experience of being a woman, that it's normative. It's this normative discontent. And so there's research claiming that for men of all ages, whether they're kids or teenagers or men later in life, that normative discontent might be an everyday experience for men as well too. So I do not think that men and women experience fat stigma or body ideal types in the same way, but there are similarities and commonalities and there is a convergence in what these expectations are in our cultural moment. So that's part of what I'm trying to unpack. As a feminist scholar, right, I'm not letting go of all of it. Um, It's not like, oh, we're all oppressed and it's the same and everyone's miserable. It's a lot more complicated than that. But I think much must be said that yes, these standards are changing and the way they circulate in culture is also changing for men in distinct ways. Yeah. And I mean, I know from some of the limited research on eating disorders in the trans population that there is a much higher incidence of eating disorders among trans folks than would be expected in, in sort of a general population, right? And so I don't know if there's any research around, you know, body ideals for like gender nonconforming people or mm-hmm. trans people or whatever, if that's still kind of emerging research, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, I know I have one footnote. I'll have to dig it out and I'll send it to you. But I believe there was a study that showed that sort of these heteronormative ideal body types for men and women did hold so strongly that they definitely shaped the trans experience as well. That trying to uphold or achieve those ideals were destructive in similar ways. I think they looked at sort of overall diet quality markers and then looking at you know, sort of responses about body image and how they felt about their bodies, that it was more destructive working to achieve the female body types. But it's a very important emerging area. We need more good work there, not just for understanding it in sort of a you know, 
so much of the research has been more biological and physiological and even from the mental health community, but to really think about it in biocultural ways, to think about the broader context of these health issues and realizing like how very ingrained these expectations around, you know, quote unquote, feminine and masculine foods and ways of eating and ways of living and being in one's body, that those are so ingrained, even as we go into these more fluid spaces. Right, because that does shape the experience of someone who is binary trans, I guess you could say that, you know, someone who identifies as either male or female, there's sort of like this download of cultural expectations about Mm -hmm. what it means to be male or female that shape someone's identity. And then the interesting experience of being non-binary and sort of what it means to exist between or reject, you know, some of those ideals for each gender. Mm -hmm. And, And that would be really interesting to see in the context of food as well. Like, what does it mean to be non-binary and have a relationship with food in this culture that pushes like, here's how to do masculine food, here's how to do feminine food, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a a super important area of research. I'm curious, going back to what you said earlier, this will be a totally leading question, but you (laughs) said in, in 1920, something happened that made women's or made the thin ideal apply more to women. Like, what was that? What was going on there? And how did it, how did it change? Who knows what happened in 1920? So part of the argument that historians have made is, you know, 1920 is women's suffrage. So not only, you know, women's sort of political enfranchisement in a really profound way, but women, you know, suffragists, they had been campaigning for the vote for decades and decades and decades. So it's not like the vote, you know, all of a sudden women could vote and snap this all changes overnight. Like this was decades in the making. And so for me, as I study the 21st century, Like I'm arguing that what I'm unpacking is sort of a post second wave moment. What I'm able to sort of see percolating in the culture around us right now are these responses, many of which are regressive and reactionary and negative to women's empowerment in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So I think the the shift happening in 1920 is indicative of change that was building up for the decades prior. But the rise of the new woman, of different expectations of courtship and marriage, of women going to college at higher rates, of going into different sorts of careers, there were significant changes in opportunities for women at that point that, you know, continued to, to shift and continue to open throughout the 20th century. Right. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the beauty myth and this idea that the beauty ideal for women has sort of emerged and become more oppressive at times when women experienced greater political power, right? So, of course, 1920 is like the first time that that really happened. But then, yeah, through the 60s, maybe the 80s also, there were there were those moments as well. Exactly. And so I think part of it's political. And then some of the other sort of context around thinking about diet and dieting and anxieties about the body, you know, slightly before that in the 1910s, also relates to sort of these new social systems of quantification. So when you think about the history of nutrition science, it's not until the mid and late 19th century that scientists discover the macronutrients in food, that they develop the concept of the calorie, that there's energy in food, and you know it's the energy produced when you burn it, and the understanding of how that relates to the body. 
And so as that nutrition science research came out of laboratories, many of which were supported by the American government, that there was, you know, a little army of female domestic scientists who went out into the culture working to rationalize American eating habits, particularly among new immigrant groups, that it was viewed, you know, not only as a way to get everyone to eat well in a very, you know, moralized, judgmental fashion, but also to construct good Americans. The educational component of nutrition at that time was very much tied up in these ideas of the nation and patriotism. So combining, you know, these ideas about nutrition for the first time and calorie counting emerging as the first time it was a social phenomenon. It's also the first time that we have ready-made clothes that come in a particular size. So it's in that moment when all of a sudden the clothes aren't made to fit you. You have to find clothes that you fit, which is something that we all struggle with still, right? I know when I think about, you know, if I got to be an incredibly wealthy person, what would I want? Like that would be one of the things, right? Like you make the clothes that fit my body, that fit my style that I like, instead to randomly fit a particular size, you know, that's developed just from statistics across the population. Right. So that's right. Startup space. You know, so many of these women-owned businesses, new seats are these small startups, whether they're making bras for women or swimsuits for women, you know, they're drawing from a different kind of data set and thinking about women's bodies differently. So much of the expansion of ready-made clothing was tied to these different industrial production systems. When you think about producing cars and other sorts of consumer goods, of what the pieces are, what they're based on, what they're molded on, these are different than that. And so to have that happen at the same time that there was these newly visual aspects of the consumer culture with the rise of the film industry, there have been fascinating histories talking about how people's gazes are oriented throughout the world differently once film exists. Even before that, with the rise of photography, how that changed what people thought was real and true of what the, the camera could capture. This is the same moment with an expansion in print media, with women's magazines becoming much more popular. And in along with ready-made and size clothing, you know, different technologies in producing fabrics and the textures that go into fabrics, that they hugged the body in different ways. And fashion trends were more revealing than they'd been in previous decades. So all of these big changes, you know, compound upon one another as we think about this history of dieting and of particular body types being held up as these social ideals. That's so interesting. And so what was it about a thin body that became the ideal at that time? Like why why a thin body in that situation? Why not say for example with a with the clothes hugging the body differently argument? It's like why not a curvier body that the clothes hug in this particular way that is it's just so interesting that that thinness became the thing. It goes back to social class. Right. So that the plumper body in these earlier historical moments was emblematic of wealth, of being able to eat enough and to be able to carry extra weight, of being fertile and, you know, different understandings of what beauty was. And there were also different moments when beauty was defined for women in particular by a woman's face versus a woman's body. Those sorts of things shift as well of how beauty maps onto the physical self in different ways. There have been really interesting histories of plastic surgery 
which people thought that sort of the rise of the plastic surgery industry and of body modification came out of World War One, the first time we had soldiers coming back who were, you know, brutally disfigured by war, that plastic surgery was a way to be, you know, that the medical establishment, you know, met a particular problem. But there have been histories since then saying, no, this happened way earlier. It's a part of these shifts of wanting to achieve particular body types that relate to particular social expectations. So as, you know, this anxious middle class rises up, part of the shift is the idea that you have so much to eat, right? So much available to you that the way one demonstrates their class status is to restrain and to not eat. And so, I don't know, in some ways it bears similarity to, you know, once you're a celebrity and you have all this money, then everyone just gives you things to wear, right? (laughs) You don't even have to go out and spend the money anymore. That's interesting. It's true. It's like, yeah, once you have enough, then you don't actually have to use it. Mm-hmm. We know we were talking about sort of these waves of immigration, that part of it was quite racist and exclusionary, that the later waves of immigration of people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, they had different body types compared to um, sort of the Western European folks who had come in the first big waves. And so part of the rise of a thinner ideal to define a middle class, you know, in control American citizen was this you know, contradistinction to sort of these stout, sturdy immigrants coming in who did different kinds of jobs, lived in different areas of the city, ate different kinds of foods, etc. Yeah, so it's all about sort of distinguishing oneself from a a lower class. Yeah, from a series of others, right? Right. That that maps across a lot of categories of identity, but... That's really interesting. And so how did things morph and shift from the 20s to the 50s and 60s as, you know, there's just sort of this continued drumbeat of diet culture getting stronger and stronger, it seems like. Yeah. So the actual like physical figure that was idealized changes slightly in that time period. The flapper, for example, you know, was quite flat chested, you know, with those long pearls that were very fashionable. Like those are quite difficult to pull off (laughs) when you have anything larger than an A cup. (laughs) You know, the shift dresses, like sort of all the aesthetics that went along with the fashion of that moment were, you know, requiring a particular sort of androgynous figure. The Gibson girl comes slightly after that, and she isn't even based on a real woman. She was a figure that an advertiser artist had drawn. So she was a bit more athletic and had more curves. And then in wartime, with the different ideal of the pinup, of representing sort of an American fertility, a woman to return home to, you know, as a symbol, you know, who was all throughout sort of wartime popular culture and different fashions that fit in different ways where the waist became really important. But then into the 1960s, you know, some folks hold up Twiggy, you know, as this very different sort of moment in defining beauty through the body and like a very, very thin, very androgynous body type coming into vogue and sort of being taken up you know, that the, the ideal body types in many ways, you know, mapped on to sort of what the trends in the fashion industry were. 
And so even though, you know, we've talked about how the themes of sort of clean eating are just as destructive as, you know, the, the diet culture of decades past, I do find that the, the coupling of sort of this clean eating paleo, you know, way of thinking about eating goes along with CrossFit and these other, you know, very intense workouts that do come with a different body type for women, a different idealized body type for what women should look like. She's very muscular and strong and can do anything. And I, I think that, of course, there are contradictions and complexities to that. And it goes along with an eating culture that I don't think is free from a lot of these other constraints we've talked about. That is a shift in a different kind of body being viewed as acceptable and beautiful and aspirational for women in a different way. Mm -hmm. It has a longer trajectory from sort of Jane Fonda's workout videos, like the 80s and 90s is sort of the moment of like the toned body. And if you think about that, you know, the early 2000s with stars like Britney Spears, right, where she was a bit more fit and she did lots of ab work and that was a different kind of body that up as beautiful and fit and aspirational. And so I think this sort of CrossFit, you know, a different kind of sort of fitspo kind of body is tied up with social media, right? And the, a way of sharing images of the body that's different, right? These other moments of diet culture didn't have social media. I and mean, some of them didn't even, they had forms of communication that were visual that moved much more slowly, like films and film strips and magazines and newspapers and handwritten letters that I most of the context and the social tensions we deal with now all have a long history. Nothing is really new. That's sort of the bummer line that comes <laughs> with being a historian, right? Like, oh, just a second. That's not actually new. <laughs> but it plays out differently in different moments. And I think the pace of communicative technologies is one big thing that has changed in the way that it sped this up and made the world even more visual than it was and so I think the shifts that we have now around us in the last decade are just as profound as what was happening at the turn of the last century. Mm, that's interesting. And yeah, it is disseminating this certain type of body, this certain type of fitness ideal to women now too. But then, you know, as you've said earlier and, and you've you know worked on in your research, there's sort of a heightened muscular ideal for men at this point in time too, right? So mm -hmm. how has that shifted? And when did that really come back on the scene? Because it, it seems like for a period of time anyway, men weren't really the target of body ideal advertising or shaming or whatever. Yeah. So in that first sort of 19th century moment, like that is when a muscular body type came in as a particular kind of ideal for white affluent men as a way to sort of assert that sort of authority. I'm sort of envisioning like a guy in a onesie, like a sh with shorts, like yeah. lifting weights with a handlebar mustache. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like that is, you know, this first kind of moment of thinking about bodies that way. There was actually a whole sort of social moment of, it was called muscular Christianity. There's also this fear that, you know, as 
American culture has become more secular compared to sort of the 17th century, sort of those origins of being, you know, a very deeply religious community, that there was this concern that like the church as well had been feminized and, you know, was marked by these moments of charity and sort of these women's groups that muscular Christianity linked, you know, faith in the body in really complicated, interesting ways, which maps on to these same sort of themes of the physical culture movement, which was the beginning of, you know, bodybuilding as we know it today, sort of the beginnings of, you know, like a Joss Weeder or, you know, this is the same sort of lineage that like men's fitness and men's health, all those magazines come out of. But through mid-century, the ideal was, you know, a bit more slim. You know, when you think about the man in the gray flannel suit, that that was an icon that was very complicated for men. It was unsatisfying for a lot of men to come back from World War II and to make sense of that post-war moment. And so the the 1980s is an interesting time. I'm sure everyone's seen the that aerobics competition <laughs> that was from the 80s. Oh, yeah. You know, that of thinking about the very interesting juxtaposition of sort of gym culture coming out of the 80s, you know, or reaching a new height in the 1980s that was in part about, you know, lifting weights and a particular kind of muscularity, but that it coincided with that aerobics moment. And so I think that's something important to think about as well well that while for women it feels like there's been a a singular sort of dominant thin ideal that in each of these different historical moments that there's there's always complexities right in the ideals and in sort of the subgroups of how people actually went about living their lives and thinking about their bodies and so the 1980s is perhaps a you know a potent example of that how does muscle building go right alongside aerobics but we see that in different ways, you know, with like I've looked at, if you look at yoga videos, right, that are trying to get more men to do yoga, it's very interesting sort of in the, that early 2000s moment, how they designed the sets of the kinds of language they use to cue men, how it's very different when they have a co-ed class going on in the video, or if it's a video made solely for women, like I'm always interested in how whether it's about food or eating or working out or cooking, you know, these performative aspects of how we perform what masculinity and femininity supposedly are or should be in a particular historical moment of how those shift and change and are distinct. They're historically contingent in really profound ways. Yeah. And so you're writing your dissertation on dude food, right? That's the that's the term. Tell us about dude food and how that plays into this masculine ideal of what bodies should look like, what quote unquote masculine food choices are, and what the context of all that is. So the perfect example of it is is, is actually real men don't eat quiche. Have you heard that phrase? Oh, yeah. Right. So everyone's heard that phrase, right? Like it circulates in culture and it has this idea behind it, right? Of number one, the idea that there is a real man, right? That he exists. There's a particular kind of gender performance behind him and that he eats only certain foods and in certain ways. And that that is part of what defines being a real man. So Real Men Don't Eat Quiche was a best-selling book. It was 93 pages of satire. It came out right before Father's Day that year. And it was best-selling. It spawned a whole group of sequels. It was translated into many different languages. It was a bestseller for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so in looking through 
these jokes about what a real man does, what a real man eats, how he, you know, thinks about his body, they all align perfectly with what Raywin Connell theorized as hegemonic masculinity, which she defines as, you know, a culture's normative, accepted, like number one way of being a real man. And so it's held up by particular archetypes, often, you know, like sports stars or celebrities. Very few men actually achieve it and embody it, but its cultural power makes it so that all men sort of relate their own masculinity toward it and around it. And it creates hierarchies of different sorts of masculinities that also relate to sexuality, that also relate to patriarchy and the subordination of women, and how a particular kind of masculinity shapes men's experiences. And so real men don't eat quiche is basically, you know, defines it so perfectly, right? They're men who don't need to stretch before they work out because their bodies are just ready to go. They don't brunch. They don't eat asparagus. They don't eat anything (laughs) French, you know, like it's hysterical. But I think what I find interesting is that it's this work of satire, but the questions within it resonated in a real way. The underlying question is how in the 1980s with the rise of the new man, right? How is a man supposed to be sensitive and do half of the housework and do all of these more sort of enlightened ways of being a man? How is he supposed to do that and sort of maintain these strictures of manhood that have been a part of the history of what men were and how they acted? Like, how are they supposed to make Make sense of themselves. And so in thinking about ideals and the social work that they do that's really complicated, the idea of being a real man or a real woman and what that looks like has profound consequences. And because I study food, I feel like all that evidence is closer to the surface. There's a great marketing scholar. She talks about gender contamination. The idea that a particular product can be gendered really strongly as masculine or feminine, and then you can't successfully sell it most of the time to the other gender. You have an easier time selling something masculine to women, because that's sort of an upward trajectory, right, that has empowerment and resistance. But to sell a feminine product to men pushes back against that in different ways. So that's why I'm so fascinated in looking at these strongly gender-coded foods. So I looked at diet sodas and yogurt, two foods that have conventionally been coded in our culture as very feminine foods, foods that their marketing companies had only invested in in a real way in selling to women. So it's in this early new millennium moment in the 2000s when they reconfigure these products and they come up with diet sodas and yogurts for men and endeavor to sell them to them. So I'm interested in how those food companies and their marketing agencies constructed these ideas of what a real man is and a real woman is around being able to navigate this gender contamination. So I'm looking at it with food products, looking at, you know, men's cookbooks, half of which have dude food in the title. And they're all neat. There have been great histories looking at men's cookbooks from the turn of the last century in the 1920s and the 1950s and 60s. And so I'm looking at this corpus of new cookbooks for men that have, you know, distinct misogynistic messages as a way to uphold masculinity, even when encroaching upon these sort of feminine spaces at the kitchen and cooking every day. 
So we're looking at cooking at home, looking at cooking on televisions. I'm looking at Guy Fieri and this sort of populist bromanship that he performs in kitchens across America. He and Emeril Lagasse before him, you know, significantly shifted the number of men who were watching Food Network, particularly in prime time. So they're tied up in this sort of shift in Food Network and in culinary television. So in looking at food and cooking and then weight loss dieting, that it's in looking across these spaces that I'm unpacking how our current moment is working through what a real man is and pushing back against some old definitions while still upholding a lot of the structures and hierarchy that came with them. I think masculinity for men today is more flexible in some ways, but only for some men, mostly for white, middle-class, and affluent men who are straight and have families, and that I, it, it hasn't trickled down to change women's experiences or men who don't adhere to this like more hegemonic way of performing masculinity. Mm. So the hegemony is still as strong as it once was. Yeah. I mean, this is so crazy about hegemony, right? Like it's there and it's so pervasive and so present that you don't recognize it shaping the direction of your life and your identity. That's how cultural hegemony works, that it's it's such a complicated sort of aspect of culture. And so there are definitely moments of resistance, of contradiction, of ambiguity. Like I, I'm working on sort of this idea of um, the ambivalence of masculine body discipline, right? So the idea of losing weight for a man is so often spoken in terms of exercise, of building the body up, of eating power foods, the, the concept of zero. When you think about Coke Zero or the yogurt I'm looking at, you know, triple zero, that it constructed a very different diet culture for men that wasn't about restraint or lack or hunger or, you know, this ongoing discipline that was expected in a way that was quite restrictive. That for men, dieting, they never used the D word, right? Like I remember I was looking through focus group quotes that you know, at Dr. Pepper, they say, you know, diet's a four letter word, you know, men won't drink diet soda, even if they want a low calorie option was what they were hearing. So I'm interested in being able to unpack those stereotypes and see how they play out in these products and in these different avenues at the level of representation. So I don't do ethnographic work to study how like actual men, you know, felt going on Weight Watchers or what actual men think about Coke Zero, that I'm studying it at a different level. But it offers one answer to being able to understand the very complicated context in which we're living right now. It's so interesting. And when you say like, when you talk about the difference between men's marketing of men's diet food and dieting to how food and dieting are marketed towards women, this idea of lack and deprivation being sort of part of the fabric of the marketing with women is just sort of taken as how it is, right? But with But for men, it's almost like it has to be this different thing because male privilege sort of doesn't allow for that level of deprivation and lack. That's just my sort of something that popped into my head, but I feel like it has some it has to have something to do with male privilege and sort of not being willing to accept a certain level of deprivation. No, oh, absolutely. A piece I published recently, I was comparing how Weight Watchers Online marketed their program to women versus to men, because they now have Weight Watchers Online for men. But it's the same tools, you know, to be able to count points and scan things in the grocery store. 
And so what I found is that in order to sell to men, they had to construct weight loss as something wholly different. And so for men, it's literally the promotion of dude food. All throughout it says you know, you can you can still eat man food. All of the examples are, you know, pizza and tacos and beer that you will not have to restrict. You're just gonna eat smarter. You're not gonna have to change how or what you eat at all. There's no expectation to, you know, internalize that discipline like you were talking about with women, which is so expected and a significant part of normative discontent that that's just how women eat. And so one interesting finding there is that what is also different is the weight loss promise for men and women. So for women, the promise as destructive and complicated as it is, right, is that you're going to be a new and better version of yourself. Women talk about being better mothers and, you know, more invigorated in their careers and like better wives and just like everything is new and wonderful once they're in a thin body. For men, there is no promise. Hmm. The promise is you'll lose the weight and you'll get back to your life. In a thin body. Wow. So I, you know, I'm looking at, you know, I mean, that's incredibly ambivalent, right? That this promise for women is oppressive. It's a significant part of how diet culture has trapped women for decades and decades and decades. But the fact that for men, there literally is no promise of, you know, improvement or of knowing oneself of, you know, any sort of process of transformation, that I argue that is one of the ways that patriarchy also traps men. Of of course, it's experienced differently than how patriarchy shapes women's experiences or how it shapes you know, different gender identities. But it was one interesting way to sort of think through what is different for men and women, just drawing from how they advertise you know, one particular program. But I think the other things that comes out of that is that there are these expectations about how men approach dieting, right? That men don't, this is coming from diet programs and what I've seen in scientific papers when they list their assumptions in the backgrounds before they tell us about the weight loss intervention they did with men. They say that the findings are that men don't want to change their lifestyle, that they don't want to have to make significant changes to their diet, that they're less interested in nutrition and health information, that so much of that is culturally constructed, but is accepted within these sort of public health and you know, medical weight loss communities and studies and publications as if it is a fact of the masculine experience with food, the body, and weight loss. And that that does an injustice to women's experiences and the different expectations with losing weight and in how the scientific community views that differently from men and women. So that's one of the way, you know, when people, you know, when you're someone in the humanities, right, which I, that's sort of where I position myself of, well, what's the real world sort of application of your work? Like, why does this actually matter? And in being able to look across the foodscape and understand how these various companies and marketers define masculinity and femininity maps on to these scientific ways of thinking about the body as well. That, you know, feminist, you know, social science studies of science 
frequently always make the point that science happens in context. It happens in culture. It reflects its culture. It can't be divorced from culture. Right. It's not just objective in a vacuum. Exactly. So critical nutrition studies is all about saying, you know, nutrition science came from a particular moment and there was this deeply moralized objective to the research being done in the lab and how it was going to be applied to particular populations, including, you know, these massive, you know, big groups of immigrants coming in who are expected to be disciplinized in particular ways. And so that's one particular example. But to remember that, you know, science, science always happens in a social and cultural context context and the ways we think about food and eating, nutrition, the body, weight loss, quote unquote, obesity, and quote unquote, diet related diseases that all happens in that kind of a context. Yes, that's so important to remember. And again, I think it, it sort of is hopeful in a sense to remember that, right? Like we talk a lot on this podcast about health at every size and mm-hmm. the research supporting that and how outside the mainstream that research is at this point in time because of all of the stuff you mentioned, right? This whole sort of machinery and historical context that's just kept kind of moving us deeper and deeper into a diet culture. That's the culture that our scientists are coming out of, right? And that our our doctors and our researchers are coming out of to do their work. So the assumptions that they're making about bodies, about, you know, why people are the size they are or what quote unquote, they should be able to do to change their bodies, like that all comes out of diet culture. Like it's it's all people, you know, science mm-hmm. is done by people. And even the folks writing the grants to get the science done are people with their own experience of this culture. Oh, absolutely. There have been great, you know, studies very, being very critical of sort of the medical industrial complex behind treating obesity, of sort of this revolving door between commercial weight loss, sort of very dieting kind of products and things that we consider more medicalized, right? These sorts of medical treatments that people think are more trustworthy and based in better evidence. And that often that line is blurry. Now, we have a lot to do of figuring out how to make the, the, the healthcare system do better justice to patients who come in who are perceived only through their fat bodies and how that, you know, changes their complete experience with the healthcare system. Like, we can do so much better there. Seriously, because stigmatizing people for their body size then keeps them from going to the doctor, right? Being shamed is not a fun experience, mm-hmm. so you're not going to want to go to the place where you constantly get shamed. Or, you know, if it, if someone is able to sort of stick it out and keep going back, it's like that internalizing that stigma and sort of operating from a place of self-stigmatizing actually leads to worse health outcomes, right? Like now there is evidence on that too, that people who have greater internalized weight stigma are at higher risk of all sorts of chronic diseases and disease risk factors and markers than people who don't have such high levels of internalized weight stigma, even at the same body mass index category. Like So even people within the same range of sizes, the difference is how much internalized weight stigma or how much weight stigma have you internalized? And that can make a huge difference. And in our culture, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people in fat bodies who haven't internalized that stigma at some level because it's very difficult to go through life in a fat body and not pick that up from our culture. But, you know, I think one of the hopeful things that, that I can see is that there are some people who've, you know, there are many people who've recovered from that, that internalized weight stigma, right, or are recovering and able to start unpacking 
these issues and starting to see like, hey, wait, this is not my fault. This is a medical system that's stigmatizing me. And then there are parents now who are raising kids to be self-stigma free to the extent that is possible within our culture, right? Parents who, who get fat acceptance and health at every size and can try to give that sort of base of self-acceptance to children growing up and and stand up for them and say like, hey, you don't get to talk to the to my kid that way, you know, like doctor or yeah. whoever, right? And and that's powerful. I think that's mm-hmm. really that's a powerful experience for a kid to grow up with someone defending them like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there is hope for this culture, even though it's got this very difficult, complicated history. Yeah. And culture change is slow. It takes a long time. And I feel like we are in a really interesting moment where I feel like momentum is catching up and churning and interesting things are happening. And so we have to cover as much ground as we can now because there will be a pushback. There will be a reaction to all of this building and we have to be prepared for that. And so the more people who are part of this good fight, the better. Yeah, that's such a helpful thing to keep in mind too, right? Because I think of it kind of like women's suffrage, like you were talking about, had decades of history, decades of work that went into it before the actual passage of of the law, right? And so it's kind of, I think we are in a similar moment with body acceptance and health at every size where like this is hopefully the decades of work are happening right now and there's going to be some sort of explosion of like, this is going to change public health policy at some point. This is going to change mainstream culture at some point. Maybe not in my lifetime. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get lucky. I don't know. But, you know, one can hope, right? But to sort of see that, like, yeah, when women's suffrage happened, that wasn't like, woohoo, cool, women are equal. Let's have a party and it's all unicorns and rainbows. It's like, no, there was a huge backlash that was very insidious to sort of take away some of that newfound political power that has had long repercussions in various ways throughout our culture. And so kind of being vigilant to that and being aware that that is that is a, a thing that's going to happen, but we can sort of prepare for it and expect it is probably the best we can do. Yeah, that tenacity is important. And I think having that historical context is helpful, right? And realizing like what suffrage passes in 1920 and we're here now almost a hundred years later where we still have significant underrepresentation of women in political positions. We still have a wage gap. We have, you know, we have so many issues we're still working on that these are long ongoing fights. And the more we think about them intersectionally, and I think thinking about you know, body size and thinking of that as another aspect of identity that impacts people as profoundly as gender and race and sexuality and social class and able-bodiedness, that it's something we should be taking that seriously. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Emily, I could talk to you forever. This is such interesting stuff. And I love, I love your voice. I love your work. And tell us where people can find you online and learn more about the work you're doing. Yes, folks are welcome to find me online at emilycontois.com. I've been blogging there for about five years about my research and my teaching, or whenever something crazy happens in food or body pop culture that I have to write about. Um, so that's that's where you can find all of my stuff, at least for the next year. I'm here in Providence, Rhode Island at Brown University. So if anyone comes through New England, they should definitely give me a call. <laughs> nice. Awesome. And I'll put a link to your website in the show notes so everyone can find you. It'd be great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. It's a pleasure talking with you. You're so welcome. This was so much fun. 
So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest, Emily Contois, for being here. And thanks to you all for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 121 for episode 121. That's christyharrison.com slash 121. This episode was brought to you by M.M. Lafleur. M.M. Lafleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling to today's busy professional woman. Each M.M. Lafleur customer works one-on-one with an M.M. stylist to build her work wardrobe in a systematic and personalized way. All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an M.M. stylist will send you a bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories handpicked just for you. Once your bento arrives, you have four days to try everything on. Then keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try, and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment. So to try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's mmbento.com. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under their Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever won?